Hello, listeners. Thanks for joining us for Tiny Sparks, Big Flames. Have you ever wondered what it's really like to follow your dreams? If the answer is yes, come along as we get the inside scoop from creatives, innovators, and difference makers who are daring to make their visions a reality. In three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to Tiny Sparks, Big Flames. I'm your host, Deb Gott. And today we have the amazing Sarah Schlafly in the studio. Sarah is the founder of Mighty Cricket, an alternative protein company that sells high-protein oatmeals and clean protein powders. Mighty Cricket's mission is to build clean protein supply to sustain the world. I love that Sarah describes herself as a serial entrepreneur, cricket serial that is. Her inspiration for Mighty Cricket was born out of a problem that bugged her, the harmful effects of industrialized meat. Before founding the Alternative Protein Company, Sarah worked as an accountant, chef, cooking instructor, and digital marketer for a national food brand. She was awarded Inc. Magazine's Military Entrepreneur Special Delegate, Feast Magazine's Rising Star, and St. Louis Business Journal's 30 Under 30. She's passionate about food security, nutrition, sustainability, and the environment. She also actively works in the community to alleviate these issues and to promote lasting change. As a former cooking instructor, Sarah donated her time teaching healthy cooking classes for low-income families. Currently, she's bringing together farmers, tech startups, nonprofits, and corporations to build sustainable, equitable food systems. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you. We're so excited to have you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. This is a fantastic bio. What I'd love to do is talk me through the journey behind the bio of you founding and launching Mighty Cricket. All right. So the idea started about the time my daughter was born. I thought about where the world would be by the time she was my age. So in 30 years, how was her life going to be? And I, with my background being in food, immediately jumped to the food scarcity issues that we're going to have in just 28 years. At that time, you know, we were we were about 35 years out from food scarcity issues. And um, we're quickly approaching this time of when the amount of food we can produce uh, doesn't feed everyone on the planet. Now, we already have people going hungry, of course, every day on the planet, millions of people. But given our natural resources, we can still, in theory, feed everyone on the planet. And that's not going to happen in 28 years if we continue down our current food path. So that gave me the motivation to start seeking alternative food sources. And um, I landed on bugs just Based on some information I received in the media about how uh, bugs can become that food source that's going to sustain us uh, when my daughter is my age. And I thought, wow, that's that's really powerful because, um, you know, this is exactly what we're looking for. But it's so interesting that here in the U.S. we have such an aversion to this type of food source that's actually clean. It's um, healthy for us and for the planet. And really, when you think about it, it's not that all different than some of the seafoods we eat, like lobster. 
So I got really excited about the potential of getting Americans to eat over this hurdle of eating bugs. And the reason why I, I was excited about that challenge is because I had uh, overcome that challenge before when I used to teach nutrition cooking classes for kids. And, you know, I'd bring in ingredients like kale and cauliflower and the kids would not want to eat it. And then we turned it into something that was delicious to them, you know, something that made them go, wow, I never knew that I liked kale. And then they would tell their parents and that just like getting them over those mental barriers to good food really made me feel like I did something good for the world. And so <laughs> that challenge with the bug, the bug issue really caught my attention. And I decided that, you know, this is a challenge that I have the marketing and culinary skills to um, overcome, really. What I love about that is that thinking outside of the current U.S. culture. And my understanding is that you did quite a bit of international travel as well that sort of helped you see that different kind of perspective. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I started doing some international travel just by myself. In my 20s, I went to Asia and I went to um, Central America and wandered around, basically, <laughs> meeting random people. And through that journey of being on my own and being immersed in a totally different culture, it just breaks you out of this um, box that you grow up in of this is how things are done. Because when you're in a totally different culture and you're by yourself, the way things are done are the way the people around you are doing it. So you, it's just, you have a totally different perspective on what is good manners. And my biggest takeaway, what is food? Yeah. So how did you get from bugs to crickets? Well, crickets were the only thing that I was remotely interested in eating. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not interested. Interest is kind of a strong word. Remotely um, able to stomach. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of considered the gateway bug of the U.S. because we just have this culturally warmer affinity towards a cricket than towards, say, a mealworm, which is also um, a very popular edible insect around the world. Um, no way I would have eaten a tarantula or a scorpion, but a cricket, you know, I grew up with Jiminy Cricket and the Cricket of Times Square. And it just like had this persona about it that seemed a little bit more American. Tell me about the first cricket dish that you ever put together. Oh, that I personally put together. Okay. Well, the very first cricket dish I ever ate was um, Chapool's brand of cricket bars. And I went to the Pacific Northwest uh, after coming home from my Asian travels. I had like a week at home and I picked up and went to the Northwest and I was looking all over in all the grocery stores for Chapool's cricket bars because I knew that they distributed out there. And eventually I found it and I got this um, really wacky flavor. <laughs> Their bars, they, they have, um, they had at the time like very 
creative, unique flavors. And I brought it home and I met my my co-founder at Whole Foods. And then we we set it on the table and we cut it in half and we both ate it at the same time. And my reaction was how pretty much every single person's first time reaction to eating cricket protein is. There's all this anticipation and you take a bite and then you're like, oh, it just tastes like any other food that I'm used to eating. (laughs) Yeah. So that was pretty much our reaction. We're like, okay, that was (laughs) anticlimactic. I don't know what it is about you know, our culture, but we just think that it's going to be such a unique, weird, different, exotic taste. And then you eat a bug and it's like, well, I've tasted this before. You know, it just tastes kind of nutty or it picks up the flavors that it's seasoned with. So that was my very first time trying cricket. And then I ordered some cricket flour from, um, you know, some Amazon vendor. (laughs) And I started experimenting with different dishes and I think the first thing that I made was like I had this concept of oh maybe we would launch with a cold cereal like a kid cereal that has the cricket protein in it and it would be flavored like kid cereals were so the first product I tried was a cinnamon toast crunch wow (laughs) it was gonna be like a cricket crunch um and so like I made this dough type thing and with cinnamon, I like added the cricket flour and rolled it up and like cut it in squares and baked it. <laughs> yeah. And how was it? It was pretty good. Um, and I got pretty excited about the concept. So then I called around to different food manufacturers who could make this product for me. And I quickly learned that an extruded product, like a puffed cereal, is a pretty big investment. And you're starting at like, a minimum production run of 50,000 pounds of cereal. So that would be, you know, if you put 12 to 16 ounces in a box, that's about 50 to 75,000 boxes of cereal. Oh, okay. (laughs) Just for the, the minimum order. And I was like, oh, I don't know if there's a market for this. I have to test the market first. So my business partner and I decided to do something that we could mix together in a small commercial kitchen locally. Um, So we came up with the concept of flavored oatmeals because we can buy oats and flavorings at the grocery store online and add the flour in and mix it all together and put it in a little bag and heat seal it. (laughs) So that was our very first product. And... It turns out that we lucked into like a very, a product that has very strong market appeal. Um, We later found out that the cold cereal market is just, has been slowly declining for a long time, but hot cereal has been picking up and more and more people are interested in like an oatmeal and especially high protein oatmeal. So then we decided to ditch the cold cereal concept all together and just go with the oatmeals. But yeah, the original idea was, okay, we're going to sell enough of this oatmeal to get to our real product. <laughs> and that never um, that never happened. Your product line has really expanded a lot. Talk a little bit about some of the more recent products that you've added. Sure. So 
The second product line we launched with was a chocolate and vanilla flavored protein powder because I would get lots of requests for just like, hey, do you have flavored protein powders? You know, and lots of athletes looking for those supplements. And I'm like, you know, I'm getting enough requests for this that I can throw something together and see how it performs. And we've gotten great reception from that product, especially online. We get most of our online sales are of the protein powders. And then the last product that we launched with was a chocolate bar. And this concept was more of a, we want good brand recognition in little small outdoorsy or like equipment shops, like bike stores or running stores. And this is something we can put up at the counter and people can try this novel protein source in something that's totally delicious. And you just open up the wrapper and take a bite. You don't have to do any prep work. So it's, um, you know, just a couple bucks to try a cricket. So it really lowers the barrier to entry for people who want to give it a shot. I love that. Let me ask you this. What are some of the challenges you've run up against in bringing this to market? There have been numerous challenges. (laughs) Um, So the biggest challenge was in sourcing high-quality cricket powder that was consistent. So a cricket farm, um, one farm to the next, will have vastly different tasting powder. As soon as we found like a really great source of cricket, that farm shut down. So then we had to taste crickets from around the world until we found a similar tasting cricket. And then we found that finally, and then they started like getting financially rocky. Mm. (laughs) So it's been really unstable, just the supply side. And then with COVID, we had a non-cricket ingredient that we were depending on for our protein powders that completely shut down. And there was no other alternative to this ingredient. No one else was producing this ingredient. It was a local, locally sourced, innovative startup that I was helping support by incorporating them into my products. Mm-hmm. And when they shut down, I asked if I could like buy the IP or whatever, how, how you produce it. And um, it, they just said it wasn't going to work. <laughs> so we had to reformulate So then I went through, you know, a whole reformulation process, started incorporating hemp because hemp is a carbon negative plant and it goes along the mission of Mighty Cricket, which we're all about, not just cricket protein, but any sustainable protein source. So hemp is another one that's like going to help get us where we need to go. So then I got hits from buyers in Thailand and Mexico really interested in our protein powders because they already have a history of cricket in their culture. So it's a pretty easy sell there. So I sent them all the ingredients and, you know, all the paperwork. And then they said, oh, hemp is illegal to import in our country. (laughs) So then I had to reformulate for them. And by the time I did that, the buyers were no longer interested. (laughs) So it's been quite the um, start and stop and start and stop. Another thing that happened to Mighty Cricket was in 2019, we were doing a strong restaurant go-to-market strategy. 
Kind of like how Beyond Meat did their whole, uh, I think it was Wendy's campaign or Burger King or something like that. Um, and they got on the menus. And I said, oh, that's great branding, you know, having the brand name. That's how what helps a good mainstream is just like if you can get it into restaurants, especially fast food chains, you know, just spurs adoption and like makes it position as this is a product for me. So I was doing that in 2019, got into 50 restaurants in St. Louis. And then of course we all know what happened in 2020 to restaurants. So I lost all of that business oh. overnight. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Lots of challenges. And at one point at the end of 2020, I had no sales. I had no product. I had to reformulate. And I thought, you know, maybe I just give up. I'm two years into it and I have nothing to show. But then I thought about all the know-how I gained and like all the connections and the retailers I developed relationships and the suppliers. And I thought like Mighty Cricket's whole mission was founded on global disruptions of climate change and food scarcity, and they're going to be, this is just the beginning, they're going to be more and more of these. So if I build a company that can be highly resilient to these incredible global disruptions that I already experienced two years in the company, then we can build a company that's going to last for the next hundred years. So I just decided to like reformulate and <laughs> re-strategize, pivot your market strategy, and that's what we did. So we're still alive four years later. Beautiful. Still hopping. It sounds like reformulate is one of your superpowers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've reformulated a lot and it's getting to be easier and easier to do that. And, you know, that's something I'm thinking about as we grow this food company. The bigger a food company gets, the harder it is to reformulate. You know, it's not an overnight process. It's really hard to pivot when you're a giant. But if we're going to be resilient to, like, for example, right now, there are wheat shortages because of the whole Russia-Ukraine ordeal. So last year, no, in 2020, I think, the summer of 2020, oat crops got hit really hard in Canada. So the oat supply was cut in a third. And that's just going to keep happening. Like, there are going to be random ingredients that just take a hit. And so we're going to have to figure out how to navigate that. I don't have a solution yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> yeah. But that's something that I'm thinking about as I'm building this company because I know that food scarcity is um, going to become more and more prevalent in the next 28 years as I build. Sure. What are some of your strengths that really have helped you through this process of really ups and downs and ups and downs? What what do you draw from when you're going through that? Hmm, interesting question. I kind of turn off emotionally, which might not be the best, the best uh, way to do it. But I've been an entrepreneur before, so I kind of knew what I was getting into. I was almost reluctant to start this company. But the something in me was just like, you have to do this for like the resiliency of your future family. But I didn't want to have a food CPG company because I know CPG and I, I know how hard it is. And yet here I am 
having a food CPG company. So I think that what like my coping mechanisms or whenever I get really good news, I kind of do a maybe a minute long celebration. I'm like, woohoo, but half anticipating like it to somehow my plans get foiled because they always do. And then when I ever get bad news, like a retailer says no or something, I'm just like, all right, let's call the next one. (laughs) Yeah, one of the fun things I've heard about the word no is it actually stands for next one. Oh, nice. I love that. Isn't that cool? (laughs) That's great. Well, now what is a CPG company? Consumer packaged goods. Oh, okay. Also known as uh, fast-moving consumer goods. Okay. Yeah. So just any product that, like most of the products on the grocery store shelves. Okay. Good deal. If that's your superpower, what's your kryptonite? (laughs) Organization, I would say. Yeah. That's definitely the number one hurdle that I always am combating. Like, I appear very organized. People tell me that. I did not know I appeared that way, but that's what people tell me. But <laughs> under the hood, I am very disorganized. So yet, yet, even though my office is a mess, I know exactly where things are. <laughs> and my husband's office is pristine. And every day he asks me to find something for him. <laughs> it just goes to show you, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know how that works because he's way more organized than I am, but I know how to find things. (laughs) Nice, nice. Okay, good deal. Let me ask you this. What are some of the highlights? We talked about some of the challenges. What are some of the highlights of this journey? Oh, my favorite thing, hands down, is just working with a team that I got to pick. So I, you know, I have three employees right now and every one of my employees, I truly love (laughs) on such a personal level. Like I just really appreciate them so much and having that sense of appreciation for someone outside the family is not something that I had before I started a company because I really depend on them to make Marty Cricket go. We would not be going (laughs) if it weren't for them. And that's kind of cool. Like becoming so dependent on such talented people who are willing to give their time, even though, you know, I pay them, but like there are a million companies they could work for and companies that would pay them even more than I pay them, you know, and yet they chose Mighty Cricket and that just really, I'm so honored by that. Uh, I just think it's the coolest thing. The other highlight that I want to point out, and I don't know if you'll do it, so I'm going to do it, is you recently gave a TEDx St. Louis presentation. And and I understand it went to BigTed.com. Tell us about that. Oh, yeah, that was super fun. So one of my... um, when I was interviewed for 30 Under 30, they said, what, what is one thing you want to do before you turn 30? And I thought, I want to give a TED Talk. And then the pandemic shut that down. So I turned 30 before I was able to give a, a TEDx talk. 
But it was something that had been on my mind for a few years, and I knew exactly what I wanted to talk about. So when it, finally the auditions opened, I quickly signed up. And I had been like bugging the organizers for all two years, like, hey, when are you going to open auditions? And so finally um, they let me know, okay, you can apply now. So I got selected a pitch, and uh, the pitch was fun in and of itself. I just, I enjoyed the whole process. I had never spent so much time on one talk because usually I slap together a presentation in 20 minutes and don't have the luxury of taking so much time. And so the end product showed me that I could, if I put in the time and the work, I could put together a really compelling reason why to eat bugs. And as I was doing it, I realized that, you know, this talk isn't just about bugs it's about expanding your mind and you can apply the talk to so many different perspectives on life and that was cool too that was an unintended consequence of going through the process i was like yeah you know what i'm really talking about it's not about the bug at all actually (laughs) it's about opening your mind and how to open your mind In the talk, I give different examples of how to go through those different thought experiments to expand your mind. I love that. Congratulations. It's a beautiful talk. It really is. Yeah. And and doing it was so much fun. I just, I'm eager to do something like that again. Just have an audience of people who want to listen to what I have to say. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So I have a very fun question for you. You ready? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. If you could invite any chef to join you in the kitchen, who would that be? Why that person? What would you cook? And what would you talk about? Wow. Okay. A chef. Oh, man. A chef. So a couple of chefs come to mind, but the ones I would be most interested in are the ones who I look to in history as altering our food landscape here in the U.S. So there was a chef in um, the 60s, 1960s in California, who is attributed to sparking the sushi scene across the U.S., And what he did was to gain adoption in a culture that was not okay with eating raw fish and seaweed was he put the um, rice on the outside of the wrapper. So he inverted it. So we're looking at rice and not the seaweed. And then he stuffed the sushi with avocado in California and and that was very popular. And so just through presentation, he got... Californians over, you know, interested in trying this food. And then the Hollywood stars started eating it and then started coming up in um, movies. And and now we're seeing sushi everywhere. It's in the freezer aisle of the grocery store. I mean, you there's so many sushi shops in rural America. And what an amazing story that is of how we can really change the way we eat. So that that's the first and probably foremost chef that comes to mind. What would you cook? Oh, well, I I love sushi. So <laughs> it would have to be sushi, right? It would have to be sushi with maybe a little bit of cricket dust on the top. 
Nice. Yeah. Nice. What would you talk about? I think we would discuss, you know, different ways to manipulate foods to get people over their mental barriers. Yeah. Sounds like a fun conversation. Sounds delicious. (laughs) (laughs) That too, right? Let me ask you this. What do you dream of accomplishing in the next five years? Oh, taking over the world. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's kind of my line. Accomplishments would include being the international leader in alternative proteins, which is a very... (laughs) Very ambitious accomplishment. But yeah, I would love to become a staple provider for people, especially in economies where food sources are scarce or volatile or there's not, there's just not access. And that's even here, right here in the US. You know, there's so many people who don't have access to good food. So lofty goal, well, lofty to achieve in five years, but. <laughs> and yet lofty goals are what drive you forward anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, the challenge of getting Americans to eat bugs is pretty lofty, so. (laughs) Yeah, hey, but so was sushi. Yeah, right, and so was lobster 200 years ago. Um, It was not accepted, and I guess maybe a little longer than 200 years ago, 400 or so. Our society is changing at such a rapid pace today because we're so accustomed to change with technology. And it's really not that far-fetched in five years when Gen Z starts aging into having more buying power that Mm -hmm. they're going to adopt this pretty quickly. Because when I go on college campuses and talk about this, like, there's very little hesitation (laughs) amongst that generation to try it. And they are so driven by sustainability and environmental impact. So we'll get there. You are cooking for the future. Yeah, yeah. But... You know, I I want people to realize that we can't wait for the future to yeah. start building more sustainable food sources because we only have 28 years. Mm. And that's not a very long time to build such needed infrastructure. This could happen, you know, our need for resilient food could happen a lot sooner as we're seeing how the pandemic disrupted our food supply chain. It really broke it. You know, we were having farm animals euthanized on the farms, yet our grocery store shelves were empty. It was just, we have such fragile supply chains. Yeah, we don't really think about how fragile things are. And yet the pandemic has taught us that. Yeah. Yeah, it's taught us a lot. Yeah, it has. Let me ask you this. If there was... Any advice that you would have for somebody who really, really has a passion like yours? What advice would you give them for pursuing that passion, particularly if they're feeling fearful about it? Mm. So one of the biggest fears is, you know, risking it all. And there's such a idea in the startup community that to be a true entrepreneur you have to risk it all and you have to put all your life savings into your company and I really pushed back against that idea because what happens is 
if people do that, their runway for making that company successful gets really short because it's just like the runway is based on how many years can I go without a paycheck and or living on savings or whatnot. And that's too risky for me. (laughs) So I would say, you know, if, if you want to pursue an idea, don't quit your day job. (laughs) Keep that going because that's going to give you the time to like breathe through all of the things to work through. And you don't have that pressure of having to make it successful overnight because it's probably not going to be successful overnight and it's probably going to fail but most of the time it fails because you run out of money so don't quit the day job and then also something that I always struggle with but I know in theory and I'm I practice fairly well is uh not waiting until the product is perfect before testing it in the market um finding the most just like the bare bone stripped down product that you could possibly put together. So for example, we did the oatmeals, not the, <laughs> not the um, extruded fancy cereal. And in doing that, you know, I took a cricket I found on some free image website and slapped it on a sticker and put it on a bag that I bought from Amazon that said Mighty Cricket on it. Yeah. <laughs> and I took this little product to the farmer's market and started selling it, um, just seeing what the reactions were. And that's how Mighty Cricket started. And now we have beautifully designed packaging and a, a well-vetted recipes. But we just iterated over and over again, very small incremental changes that have made a mighty impact. So... Starting at like the smallest unit that you could possibly think of to start is what I recommend. And then when you do that, it doesn't seem like a big leap. It's like, okay, I can do this one weekend or a few weekends and there's no risk. Yeah, that sounds like some pretty good advice. So I have two more questions. The first one is a fun question. It's what do you do for fun? What do you do for mm, play? That is a fun question. <laughs> what do you, because that balance is really important. And where in St. Louis particularly do you love to go? To oh, play? okay. Yeah, I love the balanced lifestyle. That's, that's me. In fact, sometimes with my employees, like one time I was like, hey, can you hop on a quick meeting impromptu and my employee was like oh I was just about to eat lunch but sure I can cancel I'm like oh no you eat lunch that is way more important (laughs) so yeah I'm all about balance and taking time off and and when I do that I'm a lot more productive and focused in my company it's kind of interesting how like the less time I spend in it in like the day-to-day stuff the more focused and inspired I become. So what I do for fun is um, I love to dance. I love to go salsa dancing, swing dancing. I love to meet up with friends at, you know, fun places around St. Louis like Forest Park or the Arch or um, the Art Museum or whatever, uh, rooftop bar. I love um, hiking and rock climbing and skiing. Those 
those are really fun outdoorsy things I like to get into. So just, oh, and of course travel. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely always down to travel anywhere in the country. And if a friend moves to a new place, I'm like, I'm going to go visit you. And then I actually do. (laughs) Yeah. So my favorite place right now in St. Louis is Venture Cafe. Yeah. Um, It's a community of entrepreneurs and even corporate people. Just anyone who has interested in like uh, new ventures or different ideas. And there are talks and presentations and stuff, but I never go to those. I just go for to see friends, you know. And, and I've been there long enough that every I always see people I know, and um, it's a small community of entrepreneurs and in St. Louis, and so it's fun to meet up with my friends every week. It happens, and then um, yeah, that's that's like my. That's my jam. Excellent. (laughs) Excellent. Okay, last question. All right. What's next for you? Oh, what's next? I'm working on a cricket farm. Right now it's in my garage. (laughs) And they just started chirping. So pretty soon I'll get some eggs. But what I'd like to do is pull food waste in the St. Louis food system, feed it to the crickets, find a really good feeding algorithm. And then for conversion, and then um, be able to upcycle this waste back into protein that we can then eat. So I'm getting leftover trimmings from Companion Bakery and Schlafly Brewery is giving me some spent grains, and another distillery is giving me their uh, waste. And basically, the idea is not producing cricket protein out of like, you know, another protein source that we could be eating but taking the things that we normally couldn't eat and then letting the crickets process that and then we can eat it again. So it's like this idea of taking our such limited resources and maximizing them to their fullest potential. I'm always about recycling things. For example, my friend gave me a shirt and she bought it from a secondhand store, wore it for a few years, and you know, grew tired of it. Gave it to me, I wore it for a few years, and then I gave it to my daughter, and she turned it into a pillow last night. So nice. <laughs> it got four lives, and we'll see where that pillow ends up. But you know, that those are my favorite things to do. I love that, Sarah. Thank you so much for being on the show. I just have enjoyed every moment of this. Yeah, thanks for having me and letting me talk about you know, bugs. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you everyone for listening to the show and spreading the word about us to all your family and friends. Sarah, how can people get to know you better? Oh, so I've always been very active on LinkedIn and I accept any connection requests. So if anyone wants to connect with me, you can do so. I'm just Sarah Schlafly on LinkedIn or you can follow me. And then Lately, I've been playing around with Instagram a lot. I'm at Sarah Schlafly, so you can follow me on Instagram, too. Beautiful. Where can people find Muddy Cricket products? Ooh, so we just got on shelf at the Fresh Time on the Foundry location, and it's been performing pretty well. So hopefully this test market then will be proof of concept that we can expand to other Fresh Times in the area. We're also at little shops around town 
And we have a store locator page on our website. So our website's mightycricket.com. And um, if you search the store locator, you can find a store near you. Beautiful. Everyone check out Mighty Cricket's website and her TEDx talk on TED.com. You can see her in action. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful performance. So thank you again for joining us, Sarah. Thanks, Deb. That's it for this episode of Tiny Sparks, Big Flames. If you enjoyed the conversation, definitely check out our webpage at tinysparksbigflames.com. You can find more great information about today's guests, see what they're up to, and even follow their work. Until next time, dream big, and thanks for listening.